0: we confront what may well be the deepest economic recession or downturn of our lifetimes, governments around the world uh, can and must lay the
1: foundations for a strong and socially inclusive recovery.
2: Breaking news from Iraq where the Prime Minister-designate has resigned, the second to do so since anti-government protests began back in October. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is tonight in intensive care at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, suffering from the effects of coronavirus. Good morning.
0: Hello. Welcome to our very first episode of Dispatch, a weekly podcast for Middle East Eye's Global Newsroom. My name is Mohammed Hassan. I'm joined by three of my esteemed colleagues scattered across the far corners of the world to talk about the biggest stories affecting the Middle East and beyond. This week, we're talking about British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's turbulent fight with COVID-19, which has left him fighting for his life. We're also talking about the domestic battle raging between Israel's government and its ultra-Orthodox community. And finally, we're checking into Iraq to talk about the latest political developments and the October Revolution that once crippled Iraq's political system now could be fighting for its own survival as well. With me are none other than MEE's chief editor, David Hurst, MEE reporter, Alex McDonald, both checking in from London, and our Jerusalem bureau chief, Lubna Masarwa. As for me, I'm currently in self-isolation in New Zealand. Hello everyone, thank you very much for joining me. Now of course, no event in the world today has managed to escape the black hole that is the coronavirus pandemic. One week ago, the global number of cases passed the benchmark of one million, with the death toll reaching 50,000. Today, more than 88,000 people have died. I wanna begin in the UK, the United Kingdom, a country that is struggling to contain the outbreak after what seemed like weeks of government uncertainty and hesitation, Probably most highlighted by the Prime Minister himself, Boris Johnson, who initially refused to put the country into lockdown, but now finds himself in the ICU fighting the virus. David, if I could start with you, it's quite a staggering development what's happened over the last few days. How did all of this unfold?
2: Well, uh, his admission into hospital was a shock. They said for routine tests, it was said at the time, that was on Sunday. Uh, and then 24 hours later came the news that he'd actually been transferred into intensive care and that was even bigger shock um, there had been a feeling that his actual state of poor health during the time that he was isolated in a flat here of number 11 next door to him had been understated uh, uh, but since his admission to hospital we've had a series of sort of reassuring announcements that his condition is stabilized, that he's not on a ventilator, only on oxygen, that he's almost, he's willing and ready to sit up. Um, all sorts to reassure the public that he's be he back at his job. I think the latest, um, the latest message is that he continues to make steady progress. But he's just spent his third night in intensive care, and that sort of speaks for itself.
0: Now, what is the sentiment in the UK right now about how this entire coronavirus pandemic has been handled. We heard on Wednesday that there was a record high uh, of 938 deaths within a 24-hour period. The peak that the country has been waiting for doesn't seem like it's arrived quite yet.
2: Well, what people are concentrating on is not necessarily the, uh, the highest daily rise in deaths, or, although that is pretty horrific. Um, because the, uh, that particular figure uh, includes deaths that uh, have been reported up until that time, not the actual number of deaths that took place in a 24 hour period. So it goes up and down. Um, what people are really concentrating on is the number of new hospital admissions and a number of new cases, and that appears to have stabilised at around 4,000, or rather it's not going up by as much as people thought. It's not going up Um, uh, exponentially. Um, And on the basis of that, if that holds true, then people are predicting that we may be flattening out the so-called dreaded curve. Um, uh, But it could be a while before uh, that actually happens and, and the number of cases goes down, as we've seen both from China and also from Italy.
0: Now, in the beginning, the first few weeks of this outbreak, once it reached the UK, it, it felt like the government was, was you know, really dragging its feet on this. Is there a sense now that things are in order, that it's being handled the way that it should?
2: Well, um, Boris is, is out of it. Uh, so the question is who really is taking the decisions and whether these decisions are being taken. Uh, constitutionally, uh, it's, uh, his role is being carried out by the first Secretary of State and the Foreign Minister, Dominic Raab. But Raab was very careful to say that he was not taking over as Prime Minister. He described instead collective cabinet responsibility. So the next real question is who makes the next big call in this whole uh, saga, which is when uh, they start lifting the lockdown. There's a COBRA meeting this morning, uh, that's the emergency committee. Um, and the media have been briefed well in advance that the lockdown will continue for another three weeks. So, in a sense, we're settling down to the reality that this crisis is being run as much by scientists and medics as it is by the politicians. Politicians appear as chairman to a debate in which the real speakers are the chief medical officer or the head of the NHS England or, or, or their deputies. But it will not be long before real political decisions have to be taken. Because the cost of the government's measures to support 80% of people's incomes, the damage to the economy, the discipline of maintaining the lockdown, when that starts to fray at the edges, all of this will need political decisions. And then the answer will be who is really in charge to make the big calls. Would it be Boris or Raab?
0: Now, it has been quite a big uh, political week in the UK this week. Of course, the other major development is the new Labour leader, the new opposition leader, who has just taken over, Sir Keir Starmer, a celebrated former uh, Crown Prosecutor. He takes over a deeply fractured party left by Jeremy Corbyn. What should we be expecting from him and his leadership?
2: Well, his election was very quiet. It it was a landslide victory. It's 50... 6% of the votes. Uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was seen as the Corbyn continuity candidate, picked up only 28% of the vote, while Lisa Nandy got 16%, so he was way out in front. I think what will change is very, very much the tone. Um, Starmer is, um, he described himself as soft left. Uh, He hesitated over describing himself as a Zionist during the Labour leadership hustings. Uh, although he said uh, it means different things to different people. He's a supporter of Israel, but to some extent he said that this uh, this label had been weaponized. Um, he's also a member of Labour Friends of Palestine and the Middle East, and he supports a two-state solution to the conflict. Uh, so too does Lisa Nandy, who um, is the new foreign uh, secretary. Um, she was criticised by pro-Israel groups for signing a series of pledges by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, which included the right of return.
0: Now, from one uh, political development to another, let's head to Iraq, where this week we've got some surprising news about who could potentially be leading the country forward after months of political uh, upheaval and a parliament that has struggled to put together a government. Alex, uh, if I can turn to you, can you tell us what we are hearing this week about uh, this new uh, announcement?
3: Sure. So the previous uh, designate for uh, prime minister in Iraq uh, was Adnan al-Zurfi. He is the uh, second Designates uh, in the last few months before him, it was Muhammad Talfik Alawi. Um, both he was rejected by the parliament previously. This most recent uh, nominee has also been rejected by the parliament. Uh, Zerfi was seen uh, as very much in the kind of pro-American camp and was overwhelmingly rejected by most of the Shia blocs in uh, parliament. And the new uh, nominee is apparently going to be uh, a man called uh, Mustafa al-Khazimi, who was the uh, intelligence chief in Iraq. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Kazimi has been um, pushed by um, the Shia blocs in uh, parliament and has the support of the largest Sunni bloc as well. But only a few weeks ago, when his name was being touted as a possible successor to Alawi. Uh, he was being uh, criticised heavily by many of the kind of uh, groups in Iraq aligned to Iran-backed uh, militias and the militias themselves. And the reason for this is that rumours have continuously spread, particularly among these groups, that Kazemi was somehow involved in the assassination of the uh, former Al-Quds for- Iranian Al-Quds Force leader uh, Qasem Soleimani in January. I mean, in some ways, he's able to sort of straddle the line between the kind of Iran and the U.S., and he has been, uh, been involved in mediations, attempted mediations between Iran and the U.S. Uh, in the last year. At the end of the day, arguably, it's any uh, a nominee for prime minister in Iraq is basically uh, going to be grasping a uh, poison chalice, um, considering the, uh, you know, myriad uh, catastrophes the country seems to be facing at the moment. Um collapsing oil price, the coronavirus epidemic, and the uh, ongoing anti-government protest movement, who, of course, also reject Kazemi, as they have all the previous uh, prime ministerial nominees as being part of the political establishment and one of the kind of, you know, corrupt elite.
0: Now, uh, yeah, I, as you mentioned, you know, the, the, the reason that all of this is happening, that the, the parliament has struggled to, to pick up leader, really, for the last few months, is because of that protest movement that began in October, uh, really demanding all of the elite establishment in Iraq to, to step down. How has that movement come along now? Has it been able to survive, given the current climate? Are there still people out on the
3: streets? So, officially the protest movement uh suspended itself in uh March with the coronavirus outbreak. Um obviously in terms of social distancing or self isolation you can't really do that in the and as part of a kind of uh you know tight knit sort of um mass movement. However, um not everyone has ad- adhered to this uh call. So uh in certain parts of the country, such as in Nazaria, there are still squares like the centre of the city of Nazarene and the south of the square is still being occupied by some protesters. It's, it's it's a bleak time, but protesters I've spoken to certainly um, claim that they won't let this deter them and that once this epidemic is over or when whenever um, lockdown ends, they will, uh, you know, return to the streets. And at the end of the day, all, all the problems Iraq is facing and has been facing for the last few years have not gone away. And if anything, they've got worse and are getting worse as a result of coronavirus. So, you know, you, you can't um, permanently rep- uh, repress um, a, a spontaneous uprising if the causes of it are still there.
0: Now, if you can touch on what's been happening in the country uh, over the last month with the spread of this the pandemic, you know, the stats say that there's only 1,200 cases in Iraq, but also they've been testing at a very, very low rate. What is the picture that we have so far about what's happening and how the government's been handling it?
3: So... Since Mar- I mean, since February, there have been kind of measures put in place to try and restrict the spread of the virus. Um, there have been, you know, stopping flights with Iran, closing the border, curfews have been put in place, um, and uh, yeah, there's been uh, closures of certain closures of um, some religious sites. However, it's been um, very hard to kind of um, enforce it on en mass across the country. Uh, not least because many of the most influential figures in Iraq have been, uh, shall we say, uh, prevaricating over it and giving very mixed signals. But also there's been a lot of people who have basically questioned uh, the figure- statistics being put out by the government. Um, a report by Reuters suggested that there are you know, many thousands more people who are infected and that these inf- infections have been confirmed, but they're not being put in the official statistics. And and the government was so incensed by this report by Reuters that they actually um, hit a fine on Reuters and suspended their license in the country for several months. Uh, on top of that, uh, Iraq's healthcare system is um, poor, shall we say, and has been devastated by years of conflict, devastated by uh, corruption. Um, in terms of the statistics, it, Iraq has about 1.4 hospital beds per every thousand people. Uh, 0.4 per every thousand people. Uh, 0.4 doctors per every thousand people. There's about there's about 500 ventilators in the entire country. So yeah, and yeah, all the doctors I've spoken to basically say that you know, racks just about managing at the moment. But basically, if there's a massive spike in infections, the system, the healthcare system will collapse.
2: Police are continuing operations together with the Ministry of Health, in order to implement and prevent the movements of people. And specifically where we are in the city of Memwek, the areas are locked lockdown and our police units are in and around the area to prevent anyone from coming in and preventing anyone from coming out.
0: Now, if we can turn to another country in the Middle East, uh, in Israel, bitter tensions between Israel's government and the Haredi, or the ultra-Orthodox communities, have been simmering. Uh, now they feel like they 've been disproportionately targeted in the midst of the coronavirus lockdowns. Lubna, can you explain to us what 's been going on over this week and, but also over the last two weeks
1: in the past few weeks, Haredi community, the ultra Orthodox community, have been blamed of spreading the coronavirus. Um, and it 's created a lot of tension it 's created a lot of discrimination, a lot of a wave of hate against the Haredi. And almost everywhere you go, you just hear the blame against the Haredi community as the ones who hold the coronavirus. Uh, the media in Israel played a very intensive role to highlight the, the Haredi community, also in a visual way, like showing the neighborhood of Mea which is a Haredi neighborhood in Jerusalem, uh, showing many kids in the streets, showing them praying in the synagogue, and. Uh, representing them as a group that is not uh, um, respecting the rules by the health ministry and now that's it true that we have so many cases and I would say that the leadership of the Haredi community uh, played a role in that they didn't take seriously in the beginning all the um, uh, the The orders and all the uh, you know the rules by the government, but also we have to consider that the style of life of the Haredi community is different. They have no connection to uh, internet, they are not part of social media they were It was very late until they understood that there is something is happening which is serious. Uh, I would say also that like Haredi families have so many kids. Uh, nine to ten kids they live in a very crowded areas. Uh, a normal family of parents and ten, ch- ten children living in a three uh, 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 rooms flat uh, it 's not like a family in Tel Aviv which have a lot of uh, space and private houses and roads and etc, which is very easy for people to be uh, in Kortenin. It's, it's it's very it's very different.
0: Now, when we look at the the, the stats, though, you know, the, the, I think that there is, uh, I guess, a reason for why this community in particular is being targeted, unfairly or not. But, you know, when, when we speak about them having 50% uh, or a roundabout of all of the uh, cases in, in Israel, who then is to be held responsible for that? Who's to blame for that?
1: For me as a journalist, uh, to speak about the Haredi community, we have to go deep down to the history, to the style of life. And also, you know, like if we take the city of Ibn which is considered the capital of the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, is more than 200,000 people uh, in, the, in this city. Uh, 1,300 people have uh, coronavirus, more than, yeah and all the rest of the of the, of the city being punished. So they are isolated. Women who are um, pregnant and have to get birth, if they go to the hospital, automatically they're being isolated and sent to the emergency corona section, which putting them at risk. Uh, people who need medical uh, care that they, they can't reach hospitals, doctors refuse to get into the city, and people are testifying about a very high level of discrimination of humiliation. Um, we published in Middle East Side a story two days ago Kharidi uh, people say that they have to, to, hold, to, to hide their kippah, the hat they put in their head if they want to buy something out of the cities.
0: Right, because uh, as you have mentioned, you know, this isn't the first time that the ultra-Orthodox communities, especially the Haredi communities, have found themselves you know, at the center of a lot of public anger. What, if you can explain, what is the root of all this? Where, where does it stem from?
1: Yes, as I just mentioned before, there is the Haredi community, Feel all the time tension with the state. They don't serve in the army. They have their lifestyle. They want to have their own rules. And the feeling in the Haredi community, when you walk in Mea and in their cities, that they are targeted by the state. Um, so they feel like it's very easy to blame them at the moment. There is a roots for the hate against the Haredi community. Especially they're not like we're we paying taxes. This is what is like going in the mainstream, like we paying taxes for the Haredi to go to the yeshiva and to pray. So there's a crack, there is a, there is a tension between the two groups. And now it's just a good reason just to, you know, we told you, here they are. They also bring the disease and they're not listening to the case and to what happened. So let's go back to some positive news. The Prime Minister has been moved from the intensive care unit, where he has spent the last three
3: nights. Uh, This news breaking in the past hour or so.
0: I don't want to leave you guys without checking in on you and how you've been doing personally. Obviously, the coronavirus pandemic, everything that's happening in the world right now is affecting all of us as individuals. All of us right now are sitting in our living rooms where we're also working and we're, we're spending 24 hours a day. Uh, Lubna, if I can ask you, you know, how have you been doing? How, what are things like in Jerusalem right now?
1: Well, you know, when, um, the friends who knows me, they, live, they know that I'm living in the car usually. I drive from Ramallah from to, to Haifa, to Hebron, to Bethlehem. Uh, the type of my work is a lot of being in the field, meeting people, covering stuff. So I find myself at home, um, very alone. I didn't see people since a long time. I speak with my cats. I find myself shouting at the cats, talking with the cats, <laughs> uh, meditating, reading. I have waves of sadness. Uh, uh you know just uh interesting time
3: I, I think i've adapted reasonably well to the whole uh staying inside thing um but obviously yeah i mean cabin fever will set in eventually for for everyone involved and i i also have been lucky lucky enough not to have any particular personal um involvement with anything to do with coronavirus although my mum is an nhs worker not on the front line as such but she is still working and I do kind of. I'm somewhat concerned about, uh, about her some other time, but um, but yeah. I mean, apart from that, in terms of what I've been doing with my time, um, I've been trying to keep myself busy. I, in, in my in my other persona as a, as a folk musician, I've been recording a uh, song every day since uh, since going it since going into kind of social distancing mode, and I'm now on day 24. So I'll see how that turns out. Um, but yeah, um, you you basically got a double album on your hands. Oh, more more than that. Yeah, no, I've got about. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's 24 5-minute long songs, so that's what that's I mean that's yeah, several albums and I go. Yeah. Check out my Instagram, Twitter or Facebook if you want to see him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What about you David? How are you keeping busy in these times?
2: Oh, I'm keeping busy, all right. I've got a nice big garden. Um uh and I move from a laptop to the garden quite happily. One of my sons brings all the groceries to 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 the door and leaves it there. Uh, I make the bread for him. I mean, it's, it's fine on a personal level. Uh, however, I do know uh, of uh, now f- uh, four people who've died, personally. Um, and um, death is all around you. Um, uh, quite recently, uh, I had to take my wife to the hospital because she slipped down uh, stairs. And as it happened, only... Um, uh, uh, sprained her ankle, didn't, didn't break it, uh, uh, but the reception we got in a in hospital was, you're mad to come here, what the hell are you doing here? And we can do nothing for you, go out as quickly as possible. So this is a whole question in just in, in on local hospital care of what they can do for you, what they're there for, but we also have to live our lives, we also have to go to hospitals, we also have to go to work. Um, we have to get paid. We have to shop, and all of these things people are now digesting, and it's it's becoming really apparent as the lockdown, uh, you know, goes into another three three week period, that these are the real problems we're going to have to face. We're going to be talking less about the virus itself and more about how we, um, what sort of world, uh, how the world is shaped when we reemerge from our bunkers.
0: We're gonna leave things here for today. Thank you to all, all three of you for joining us today, David, Lubna and Alex, uh, on our first episode of Dispatch. In the coming weeks, we're going to continue looking at these stories from across the region and some others, in particular, looking at how Palestinians and Israel are faring with the coronavirus, Egypt's muted response to a potential health crisis, and why Saudi Arabia is expecting its number of cases to rise dramatically. But in the meantime, you can keep up to date with our continued news coverage on our website, MiddleEastEye.net. Stay safe, everybody, wash your hands, take care of yourself, and we'll see you soon.